this is Teaching Python with Kelly and Sean. Welcome to episode one, Hello World. So we're going to start with who we are. So Kelly, why don't you tell everyone who you are? Hi, yes. My name's Kelly Paredes, and I am a teacher um, who has worn many hats in the past. I've been a science teacher, technology specialist, curriculum coordinator, and now I code Python. Sean, who are you? <laughs> My name is Sean Tiber. Uh, I'm also a teacher. Actually, I'm a new teacher. Um, I started teaching just this year after a career in IT and digital marketing. So I've had a lot of coding experience over the years, but not a lot of teaching experience. So I, Kelly and I are learning from each other uh, every day, and we thought it would be great to pull together a podcast that captures some of what we're learning along the way and shares it with you. Yeah, and one of the biggest things that, that we have, um, one of our biggest takeaways is just being prepared to, to teach Python, right? And educating yourself on, one, learning how to code, and two, learning how to uh, teach it, right? That's right. So, you know, really, we thought the first episode would be great before we began teaching Python. What did we do? How did we plan that? What really got us ready to start teaching Python, at least as much as one can get ready to teach Python. Well, well for me, as, as a newbie um, to Python language, I was trying to find so many books and so many websites out there to just teach it in a simple way, um, especially for someone that doesn't have a background in, in code. So for me, books and um, websites such as Our Code or Tinker really helped me. And also Grok. It's good. For me, I was coming at it from a different direction where I had learned a lot of coding over the years. I had in my undergraduate and graduate degrees were in tech-related fields. So I had done a lot of coding throughout my career, but I'd never actually had to teach it to anybody else. So for me, I was trying to find ways that I could help others learn in different ways and find ways to make it accessible for them. Because I knew how I learned it, mm -hmm. but I wasn't sure if that would translate into how other people would learn it. So I, looked, I also was looking for a lot of books, but more in the art and science of teaching. Yes, definitely. I, I mean, if we look at all the books that we've collected over the past, uh, what, six months, um, we have a, have a, a great array of them. And I think we're going to go into that later at a different podcast, right? That's right. I think, you know, it's funny how much books have uh, really saved us yeah. in this course. I agree. Um, both for our own learning and for our students to learn. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about why that is. You know, in addition to books, we've also been listening to a lot of podcasts yes. and reading a lot of blog posts. What were some podcasts that have stuck out for you? Oh, my! One of my favorites is uh, Talk Python to Me and Code Newbie. Uh, Talk Python to Me. It was. It was not that I understood everything on Talk Python to Me because some of the topics really um, were in depth on, on about you know, pure code of Python, but just getting to know some of the language and how, how coders in Python um, were talking, I think it really helped. And you? You know, for me, there weren't as many podcasts on teaching that I thought really made a lot of sense mm -hmm. in the context that I was trying to pull my lessons together, pull my classroom together. Um, what I found useful was really observing other teachers, yeah. yes. you know, spending time watching them teach watching them manage their classrooms, visiting their spaces and seeing how they had it set up for learning. And the different styles of, of teaching and in different environments that they had created 
were really helpful when I wanted to create my own style and my own environment for, for learning how to code. I agree. And I, and I think, I think for me, one of all my biggest assets is having you around to uh, bounce some ideas off of that always helps. (laughs) And likewise, when it comes to teaching. So we've sat down and diagrammed out quite a few different lesson plans and approaches for, uh, for both coding and for teaching. So absolutely. And what do you think was, uh, what do you think is your biggest, um, uh, online application that's helped you with teaching uh, Python or just teaching in general? I mean, I, I think it's a toss-up for me between Replit and um, and Tinker. Between the two of those, I've really seen how, um, you know, with the online blog that, that Replit runs, as well as the um, Tinker resources, um, I see how they're approaching the problems and how they're explaining different concepts in computer science to new learners. And that's been really helpful to see the language that they use, mm-hmm. the pacing that they use, the types, the, the syntax and the vocabulary that they're using. Um, you know, we teach middle school students yeah. and I think there's a temptation to use simple language, right? Yeah. Or oversimplify. Right. And what, what I've seen from the digital resources is that you don't have to. No, not at all. You can help, you're defining new vocabulary for them all the time and they're ca- fully capable of getting it and applying it. That's funny because that's that's one of the things that I keep saying. It's um, and I think a lot of people say this who code. It's learning a l- new language, so you can't dumb down a language in Spanish. You have to give them the the correct language in order to to uh, to survive in in that in that country, right? right. So yeah, for me, it's uh, Tinker really helped, but not the not the kid part, but the background of Tinker. And I liked using Grok um, just to find extra Python activities for me to practice, not necessarily for the, for the students, just harder, harder lessons to practice on. You know, it's, it's funny because, you know, I had, um, it actually had been a couple of years since I had done a lot of programming. I was running my own marketing, marketing agency for a time. So I was more focused on running a business and less on writing code. So for me, actually the project Euler website was great. Um, you know, some really challenging math problems, I guess, maybe not as challenging for people who are mathematicians or hardcore computer scientists, but for me to get back into coding, it was a really great way for me to challenge my thinking and force myself to try to solve those problems using Python. Yeah, that that gives us to our next topic, you know, getting into that that right mindset. I think I think for whether you're a new teacher to code or just a new teacher, just being okay with uh, not having all the correct answers and being okay with learning I think that's uh, one thing that we both have in common, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the number of late nights that we've each pulled <laughs> or the Saturday morning text messages back and forth, like, hey, did you see this thing? Um, you, you're not going to survive if you don't have a thirst for learning, Absolutely. right? Um, don't, make, don't put so much pressure on yourself, though, that you feel like you have to learn everything all at once because it is a deep and vast ocean of knowledge. Yeah. What's really important is to be a few steps ahead of your students. And in fact, that can work better because if you have learned something recently, it's a lot easier for you to teach it because it's fresh and familiar in your mind. So, so question as a new teacher, how, because this is something that a lot of teachers usually struggle with. And a lot of times I work with, with some teachers on how to differentiate at different levels. And I know you saw it in the first couple of weeks of teaching that, that some of the students already had a strong affinity to coding and some of them did not. So how did you, how did you manage the pacing of, uh, of the very individualized students? 
You know, I, I can't say I did a great job of it at all times, right? <laughs> there were some students who were so far ahead that it was really challenging to keep them engaged and occupied and feel like they were learning things. And so, you know, my first students, I actually feel like some of them I let down a little bit, that I wasn't able to give them as much challenge as I, I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, but where I was able to, I really think there was something about the making code your own, yeah. right? And taking something that's a base level of knowledge that everyone can learn and everyone can build some skills and then giving them some choice and freedom to say, okay, now make it your own, yeah. right? And for students who weren't necessarily strong coders, making it their own maybe meant making a narrative mm-hmm. or making a story or giving it personality. And for other students who were stronger coders, it meant things like validation checking, right? Or testing edge conditions, things that were more advanced topics in computer science you know, each student had the choice and the freedom to be able to decide where they wanted to take their code within the time that we had to learn it. Yeah, I think I think for me, um, I introduced a lot of of basic uh, basic code, and I think what helped me with uh, differentiation is is giving the kids extension opportunities, saying this is your baseline. You have to understand these functions or these few words, and then the kids that can take it further. Um, I gave them that opportunity. Well, okay, well, how can you challenge? How can you change it? How can you hack this code? So I think that that was fun. And then I ended up not being able to answer some of the questions that the kids came up with when they were hacking it. Well, so that brings up a good question. How did you know that a student needed more or needed that extension? Like what were some of the signals that you saw when a student needed differentiation either upwards or downwards kind of in terms of the, the level of coding that they were capable of doing? So that's a great question. There's there's a certain a certain um, I don't know how to say it light bulb moment. That's the only way I know how to ex- describe it. Where you can see either the struggle or the light bulb turn on. And once that light bulb turn on for the basic, um, you know that you can push them a little bit further. Um, the ones that were struggling, I just kept reminding them, you just need to understand these these basic these basic lines. Don't worry about anything else that anyone else is doing. Just just learn these basic lines and we'll go from there one step at a time. So constant reinsurance for the for the slow picker uppers and um, and just for the light bulbers, uh, showing them different directions and how to find different code online that you might not be teaching. Right. So like when we um, you know the theme of this is really how do we get started, right? Yes, We've talked a little bit about like once we get it, get into it. What was your planning process for those lessons? Like when you for like if you looked at the first few weeks of, of the quarter of the course that you were teaching, you know, how did you plan that out and look for those extension opportunities? Or was it more of a reactive approach? So in the beginning, I you know, we had to do Hello World to write our first program. Um, that was a given. I think I had a mindset first that we are just going to go straight into coding. Um, and so my idea was find code that already exists, type it, the physical act of typing, and, and trying to translate it. That's originally how I had planned everything. Um, so I would have five to ten lines of code, and I would go through, and it was almost like taking a dictionary and translating from Spanish to English each line of code. And that's how I started teaching, and that's worked well for me so far. Um, but I still want to tweak it on how to get the kids to write their own. Right. And for you? Um, 
You know, for me, I, I was starting with concepts that I wanted to, them to learn. So I, you know, started with the basic concepts of, you know, some control and, and flow and, and, you know, loops and patterns and recognizing behaviors that you could modularize and simplify. Um, and so when I was thinking about how am I going to differentiate this for the learners, I was looking for, you know, kind of like a, a good, better, best, mm-hmm. right? And I know this is kind of wrong in terms of it's not a value judgment or association with that, but it was more like, you know, here's kind of the good enough level, mm-hmm. right? If they can do this, that means that they're on the right track and that that light bulb moment will happen even if it hasn't happened yet, yeah. right? Better me- would look like this, that these are some of the concepts they would grasp or some of the things that they would try. And then, you know, the best, the top end would be the ones that kind of came instinctively for, right? That they saw it, they grasped the concept, and then they went and tried five other things on their own because they got excited about it. I think that brings us to this this next point is is the fact that I think we both decided that coding's not for everyone. So we had to have a certain um, level of self-paced learning set in, and the soft due dates, I think, really worked for us. Um, and what, what we meant by the soft due dates is we had certain homework assignments, but we were un, we were clear with the students and, and letting them know that it's okay if you don't get something on, you know, Monday, you can come in and see us and we can help, help you out. How did that work for you as well? You know? Well, it's interesting because you started that at the beginning of the course. Um, and I didn't do that. Like I started with a more traditional, like it's due on this day and there will be late penalties and everything. And I wasn't super strict about enforcing it, but I was taking a more traditional approach. And then I think I actually overheard you instructing to your class that these are soft due dates. And I realized that that was the piece I was missing because, you know, my, my sense was it can't truly be self-paced learning mm-hmm. if the pace always has a, a deadline, yeah. right? And as soon as we put that deadline in there, then students get stressed out, especially our students. We're yes. in a very high-performing academic environment Absolutely. with high expectations. So all of those students got really, you know, got really sidetracked by the grades and by the numbers, and they put the wrong priority on their homework and on their learning when, yeah. we, uh, when I had it that way. As soon as I switched it over to the soft due dates where, you know, everything's officially due at the end of the semester or the end of the quarter, um, but I'm grading it along the way and I'll update your grades, but you can finish it whenever you finish it. As soon as that switch happened, I started seeing much, many more light bulb moments. Yeah. I actually saw my students performing better and keeping up better with the, uh, the learning because it wasn't a situation where they would just resign themselves to, oh, well, I got a zero on that assignment because they didn't get it done, I'm not going to do it because there's no point. Now they wanted to do it because they knew they could get the points for it. And I think out of over, you know, if I multiply the number of students I had by the number of lessons that were assigned, I had something like 700 individual modules that were were attempted over the course of the, the quarter. And of those, I think there were only a half dozen or a dozen zeros. Yeah, I thought that was great. That was the one thing I really liked about Tinker. One, the kids can do it at, at their own pace. They can do it at home. Um, and it takes them through it. There are a couple challenges, right? And there are kids that get stuck on a few things. But they're not because they didn't understand the concepts. It was just because it was one, maybe a syntax error or just one line out, out, of, out of order. Um, but the other thing, it was... It was just this freedom to make mistakes, right? It was just like, 
okay, I failed. I can't get it. I can't get it right now. But you know what? If I keep trying and keep trying, I know that I can come to Mr. Tiber or Miss Paredes and they're going to help us. And I think that kind of gave them this, this, this feeling that, okay, this is something I can do. Right. And so when we prepared all of this, like when we got this ready, you know, we weren't quite sure how it was going to go. Right. And I think what we, what we saw was we set some goals for how we wanted it to work and how far we wanted the students to take it. Um, and it, actually, in every case, they surpassed it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. The funny thing is, um, I think there were other resources as well. We keep falling back to Tinker. Tinker was like a, a good go-to for us at the beginning. It was some, almost like a safety net. Mm-hmm. So that was our baseline of understanding. And I think when they got through that, that Tinker 101, we were like, wow, these right. kids can do more than just Tinker 101. And and that's when we brought in um, Replit and, and more Moo and... Some other things, right? What other resources have you used? Yeah, um, so GitHub Education has a lot of oh, yeah. great materials. Um, I've been reading basically every Python book by Al Swigert <laughs> that he's <laughs> written. Um, you know, I, there's nothing quite like handing a kid a book about how to make your own computer games in Python yeah. and just watching them go, wait, I can do this, yeah. right? Like, I th- here's a whole book that someone's written about this, and I've done enough Python that... I think I could actually pull this and off. And all I have to do is actually read it. Right. Um, you know, and, and that's one of the things that I think we would prepare differently in our in the beginning of our courses. And we already have started to do that now that we're you know teaching our second course this year. Um, is how do we prepare students with the supplemental skills, yeah. right? The the skills that are more foundational. Um, and not necessarily computer science skills. Yeah, not how to read for understanding, right? Yeah. How to follow directions. Um, and we think that this, you know, we've seen and we've discussed this between ourselves quite a bit. You know, our students, like students and parents and, you know, most people in our society, like we skim for content. Absolutely. Right? And, and I find myself doing this all the time. I skim through a blog post or an article to find the content that I'm most interested in and I slow down for that. Yeah. What we've seen, in fact, is our students will often skip over all the text and just go from video to video on the page or picture to picture. Um, so one of the things that I think we would prepare uh, differently and we've now included in our curriculum is more lessons on on supplemental skills, right? Skills that supplement learning like how to create a good flow chart, yeah. how to think through your how to think through your program and the flow of execution before you write any code or how to read instructions for um, for content and understanding. And mostly mostly having to pro- problem solve, right? So simple things like uh, not getting that micro bit to work or the connections to work or learning how to check check to where you have some sort of error with Moo. I think that was just silly skills that you overlook at the beginning, but to actually show them what are all those icons on Moo and why is there a thumbs up that says check yeah. And and really, what is that used for? I agree on the on the information literacy. That's been a huge takeaway for me, even after teaching well, so long. That's what we call that information <laughs> literacy. Information See, literacy. I'm learning something new as we record this. Uh, <laughs> so that's been huge, and I actually learned that from an English teacher. So that was that was really helpful. Um, you know, this, this changed pace a little bit, and let's just talk about the setup. I think that was the classroom setup. That was probably the, the 
the most fun for us, right? Setting up our classroom yeah. for, for this. So the funny thing about our classroom is that over the summer, our room is used for summer camp, and it's actually used to bake cookies. Yes. So <laughs> during, the, during the course of the summer, all of our equipment for computer science, all of the resources we have, all the materials, all of our all of our stuff gets put into one corner of the room and walled off with big sheets of plywood. And we spent probably the first week and a half that we were back at school. I, I came in early um, kind of because I was just crazy that way and I was excited to get started um, to start setting up our room. And I think the, the way that we approached it I really liked it. it was an iterative process, yes, right? Just yes. like, so we're practicing computer science principles. Our first goal was just to get student ready, right? So could we actually educate students in our, our classroom? Was there an, a, a learning environment here? Yeah, and I think we both had the same vision, making spaces, but keeping it nice and airy, nice and big. So we do have um, certain areas. We have our, our robotics area, which we also teach robotics with Legos. And then we have sort of a soft space, a, a, a reading kind of hidden space where the kids can lounge back. And I, you know, as much as sometimes uh, the beanbags and the, the lounge um, lounging kind of gets me a little uncomfortable sometimes, I think I even find myself lounging in the beanbags every once in a while, reading a book and coding. There's nothing better than coding in a beanbag, I think. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that was, that was what we wanted to do. Um, you know, our kids have a lot of different classroom environments that they're in throughout the day. Um, everything from traditional tables or desks or standing desks, um, you know, they're moving a lot um, from place to place. And what we wanted to create for our students was a place where they could come in and be able to both relax and be focused at the same time. So how could they focus on learning something? How could they be comfortable while they're doing it. And so we, you know, we did things like we got, um, you know, four multicolored beanbags yeah. and every day, at least for my class, I'm pretty sure it's the same for <laughs> yours. Kids come racing in to get, get one of the beanbags. So Absolutely. they're excited to come in. And that was something that, you know, we wanted them to be comfortable, but we got the secondary, you know, or alternate purpose of kids are excited to be here. Yeah. They race to get to our classroom. Yeah. Um, maybe it's just to get a beanbag, but once they're here, they're writing code. I find it funny because I get, I have to work in two different environments. So so one of my classes is in our computer science classroom and, and another one is in a traditional classroom. And I can definitely see a difference between the flow. Um, my third period class, we get, I like to call it the Zen. We get into code Zen and um, it's, it's like a flow of, of, we just get into the mindset. You come in here, this, this, this room has a feeling of uh, a productivity. It has an excitement phase, but it also has this kind of, we're comfortable, ready to code. Where if I'm in the other classroom where the kids are in square desk and we're all facing forward at the, at the board, I tend to find that I'm not in it as well with them. So I do agree that setting up your, your space to make it, you know, whether it's like the Apple store or what, to make it an, an environment for them to get into their flow with coding. Yeah, I think one of the things that's that's really lucky for us too is your space has to reflect the style of teaching that you want to Absolutely. perform. Um, so Kelly and I have a very compatible style in that we don't want assigned seats, no. right? We don't, we're not expecting all of our students to be sitting straight upright and facing forward all the time. We want our students to be comfortable but we also want them to be able to find their own focus. We don't want to impose that focus on them. Exactly. Um, so our room is set up to be very fluid, 
right? Um, and it's often messy, right? Like it's often, there's a lot that's happening in here. There's a lot of things going on. And I think that messiness reflects actual learning happening. I agree. I agree. You know, um, what is it? The, there's some sort of quote with, uh, with the creative minds in the mess. What was right, that? The, uh, I think it was uh, creativity is messy and we are very creative. <laughs> yes, we definitely it. <laughs> and I think that's, that, that sums us up in a, in a nutshell there. Um, yeah. So. What's your, so what's your favorite thing that we did in the classroom? What's your favorite feature of the classroom? Um, cause you taught in this room last year also. What's your favorite new thing about this classroom? It's really sad, but I actually really like our, our shelving. We, we've decided to put all of our, we have a lot of gadgets and toys, things that aren't necessarily being used every day, but I know that I want to get into them again. I want to get into some of these, uh, um, spark kits up here and I like to pull down the pie tops and use them and the merge cubes and I like to get into those things so I do like to have those those shelves up so that everyone when you walk in you can see that there's a lot of stuff to do but not right now right not right now yeah it's like it's it's there but it's just a bit out of reach yeah. right yeah. and we can, it's attainable yes right? it's attainable we can pull out our step chair what about you what do you think is your favorite spot I mean, what I, love, what I love the most about this room is that there are so many possibilities, yeah. right? Um, I love, we have a VR space, mm -hmm. right? So we have a space where kids can come in and play VR. And we have kids waiting outside our door during lunch, right? Or after school. In fact, there's probably going to be a kid here any minute waiting to, you know, to play VR after school. Or our robotics team will come into the back. Um, I love the fact that we set up 3D printers in the room and now there are kids asking to make things on the 3D printers. Yeah, and it brings it in. It brings everything together. It's not this separate mindset of here here we make things, here we code things. No, everything is is in one, one spot, right? So they understand that we can code um, things to print. We can code in VR. We can we can solder things. Well, we don't solder in the classroom, but <laughs> we know that we can grab the things that we need to solder, or we right. can build a Lego. So there are so many different opportunities for the students to learn code, whether it's Python or not. Yeah, and I think that that kind of brings it back to me, like you know that day before the first day of school, right uh, when. Everything was new and I was terrified, right? Like what's going to happen? <laughs> what's that first day going to be like? It's exciting. It's thrilling. It's terrifying. All of those things all at once. But I just thought to myself, if there's one thing that I can do for students this year, one thing that I can create for them is a sense of excitement and a sense of empowerment that their ideas can be made real, yeah. right? That, they are, that their ideas are worthwhile and worth doing. Mm -hmm. And if we could create the space and create the teaching style and create the environment all together, all these things coming together, that would let them take an idea and turn it into something real that they can hold in their hand or that they can show to someone else, then we're doing it right. Yeah, I agree. And then just telling them that those, uh, I like to say the, the unicorns and fairy tales exist and that if you don't harness that creativity now and you don't dream big, then, then why do you dream, right? Yeah. So that's, that's kind of like how, I love how we, we have similar uh, hopes and dreams for our kids and codes. I mean, it, it's scary. It's scary as a teacher who's not, who doesn't have that background in coding to, to take that risk and, and teach kids that, you know, in, in one year time, they're going to surpass your knowledge anyway. <laughs> right. No matter what, right. <laughs> even as a coder, those kids are already like 
they can suck in uh, a lot of knowledge and then and just take it where you know wherever it goes um but it's a fun risk it's been fun it's been fun learning well it's paid off yeah right? it's paid off we've seen um you know so far in the first three months of the year we've seen um students you know really flourish yeah. right and really find um not just coding skills that they had but just strengths that they didn't know they had absolutely you know things that they could get excited about i had one student that, you know, Kelly knows who I'm talking about. I had one student that the second week of school told me, I'm not a coder, mm-hmm. Mr. Tiber. I'm not a coder. I don't do this. Like, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. I'm not a coder. It's a, that's a great thing, though, about – I think you see that, right? And you'll see more of that is you see these students that I hate code, I hate computer science in that first week, and we get that benefit by the week six, week seven, while all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, computer science is going to end in two weeks. We don't want to go. We love coding. Well, that same student, I just saw her last <laughs> week after she was finished with my course, and she said, Mr. Tiber, I really missed your class. Yeah, and it's right? a good feeling. And that that's a good feeling. Like it, it means that, you know, it, that it meant something to her, right, that she she got something from it. Big or small, she's a little bit different and a little bit better in her own way mm-hmm. for having having been a part of the computer science class. So I'm going to throw something out that's not on script here. Um, three words, and I'll, I'll go first, I think. Three words that we can sum, sum up for anyone who's starting to, to code Python. Um, I'll go first so you don't take my good words. <laughs> um, I think risk. You know, you have to be comfortable with risk. Um, willingness, you have to be willing to, to, to learn and some form of preparedness. Right. <laughs> you have to at least have something ready to go. Um, just in case that kid comes in and, uh, wants to ask you a really hard question. You have a little bit of buy-in time. Yeah. <laughs> and for um, you, three, three words, three words. I, I think ownership, like you have to take ownership over, over learning it, right? You can't just... Um, whether that's learning how to teach or learning how to code, you have to take ownership over that, um, that you're learning something also, right? That you will be different as a teacher by the end of that course Mm -hmm. for having taught it. Um, So take ownership, like really engage and dig into it. Um, The second thing is, is just flexibility and flow, right? Like my best lesson so far came when I recognized a student being interested in something and we just went with it and we, and we took that risk that you talked about and saw where it led and it went to a really cool place and it was terrifying at the same time because the head of the school walked in in the middle of that lesson. <laughs> um, but she trusted us and she, uh, she went with it also and she took that risk. Um, and then, then the third thing is you have to have fun with it, right? It has to be fun. Because if you're not having fun with it, why are you doing it? And why are your kids doing it, right? Why are the students doing it? So they can sense that. If you're enjoying it and you're having fun, they will gravitate to that. They're going to have fun. And, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to be learning things while you're having fun doing it. Absolutely. Well, this has been a great episode for our first episode of Hello World. And I guess it's Hello World. Hello, teaching world. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we just want to thank you for joining us on Teaching Python. This is Kelly. And this is Sean. We're signing off. Mm